You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. In our culture, we are familiar with great endings and stories. Um, if, um, if you've ever watched a movie, you know that in a good story, right, typically you're dropped into a new world, the music begins, and, you know, by the time the movie is ending, the bad guy is eventually defeated, and you watch as all of the tensions get tied up neatly, right? The guy and the girl finally confess their love for one another. Um, the football player is carried off the field on the shoulders of his teammates, or there's that final line that leaves us with this feeling, oh, there we go, Rudy, of the feeling of satisfaction. Like I think of that iconic line from Casablanca where Rick looks at Louis and says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Um, that's the way a good story is supposed to end. But as we come to the end of the book of Acts, what we're going to discover is it doesn't end that way at all. In fact, it almost seems to have the exact opposite effect of a good ending. And just to set the context for you, um, the Apostle Paul has been on this crazy road trip with his friends, preaching the gospel wherever Jesus has not been preached. And eventually Paul goes back to Jerusalem and on arriving in Jerusalem, he is arrested for preaching the gospel. He is thrown into prison and then he goes through a series of trials. Eventually, in hopes of a fair trial, Paul is shipped to Rome, and while on his way to Rome, he encounters a hurricane that wrecks his ship and tears it to pieces. Miraculously, though, Paul survives a storm, then floats on pieces of his ship to the island of Malta, and then just when you think things can't get any worse, he's bitten by a deadly, a deadly venomous viper. However, despite the fact that the islanders were, and I quote, waiting on Paul to swell up and die, God once again protects Paul. He moves on and eventually he lands in Rome where he is put into house arrest. So it's a really crazy story. You can go back and read it all for yourself later. But here's the thing. If you are reading Paul's story and if you have been falling on an axe for the last 20 chapters, the natural inclination after following his life is to say, okay, well, what happens next, right? Like, is Paul going to get a fair trial? Is he going to be in prison? Is he going to be murdered? And if so, what's going to happen to all these churches he's planted? What's going to happen to the gospel? Those are the questions that we would be asking. However, rather than getting the answers to those questions, look with me in chapter 28, verse 30. Here's how the story ends. For two whole years... Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. Scene. That's how the book of Acts finishes. Um, It is without any explanation, right? we, We don't know... Is Paul put on trial? Um, we don't know what happens. Does he live? Does he die? I mean, we just kind of have this cliffhanger, which to be honest, and you probably felt it, it, in such a loud, fast-paced, action-packed book, it's a pretty anticlimactic ending. And it's meant to cause us to ask the question of, um, well, why did Luke end the book this way? Um, is it because, you know, Luke doesn't know what happened to Paul? 
Is it because he came to the end of his scroll or he hit his word count? I mean, why does Luke end the book this way? And in the words of Ben Witherington, who is, uh, many would say, one of the best scholars on the book of Acts, he says this. The open-endedness the modern reader senses in the book of Acts is intentional. Luke isn't chronicling the life and times of Paul or the early church, early church, for that type of story would have a definite conclusion. Rather, Luke is chronicling an unstoppable phenomenon and movement that was continuing and is alive and well in our own day. Put another way, the reason that Luke ends the book as he does is he wants you and me to see today that we are actually in Acts chapter 29. That the movement that started with the early church is continuing today, which means when we read this book, we cannot read it simply as an historical account, but we have to read it realizing that the story is ongoing today and it's a story that you and I, no matter who you are or where you come from, are invited to step into. And the reason this matters is, please hear me today, Uh, the reason this matters so much is because every single person in this room is believing a story about what your purpose on earth is. You are believing a story right now about why you are here and where it is that you should be going. In the words of the Hollywood screenwriter, Bobette Buster, we are narrative creatures. What that means is we all, whether you realize it or not, are believing a story right now that is for better or worse, shaping you into the kind of person you will become and how you will spend your minutes, days, weeks, months, and years here on earth. And because that is true, therefore, listen, as we come to the end of our series to help us step more into the life God has created us to live, I want to make sure as we end today that you are very clear about what the main overarching narrative in the book of Acts is, what the major thread that is in running through this book is, and the thread that God now therefore wants to run in and through your life. And that thread, that main theme, or the big takeaway from this book of Acts that I believe that that God wants us to apply to our lives if we are going to step into the story is this. The big takeaway is that the way of Jesus, and if you remember, Christians didn't call themselves Christians in Acts, they were called the way. The way of Jesus is all in, all in. The way of Jesus is all in, all in. And here's what we mean by that. When we say the way of Jesus is in, the first thing we mean by that all in is that the way of Jesus involves a radical inclusion. The way of Jesus involves a radical inclusion. And here's what we mean by that. In Acts, what we have learned is that it is actually a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts. And the gospel of Luke is all about the works that Jesus began to do through his spirit and power life. And Acts is all about the work now that Jesus wants to continue to do through the spirit-empowered church. And the reason this matters is because when you read the prequel to Acts, what Luke makes abundantly clear in his gospel is that Jesus was about radical inclusion. In other words, Jesus welcomed all kinds of people from all walks of life into his life. For example, in Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite stories, there's a prostitute who hears that Jesus is in the house of some religious leaders, and so she wants to go and she wants to meet Jesus. And what's interesting is when she walks into this house, she knows she's going to be judged. She knows that people are going to look down on her, but she doesn't just kind of quietly go in and like kind of come behind Jesus and whisper in his ear, but rather she literally falls at his feet. 
She begins to weep and she wets Jesus' feet with her tears. She then begins to, to wipe uh, his feet with her hair and she kisses his feet. And then she pours this incredibly expensive bottle of perfume on I mean, it. It's an incredibly scandalous scene. And as this has happened, some of the religious leaders look and they begin to condemn this woman. And they say, you know, if Jesus had any idea how sinful this woman was, he would not be letting her touch him. Jesus, sensing that they're condemning this woman, then looks at the religious leaders in Luke 7 and says, actually, this woman who's been manipulated and abused, this outcast you think is gross and disgusting, she's teaching you what true worship looks like. He then looks at her and says, you have been forgiven, go in peace. And the word for peace there means go experience life to the fullest. It's an incredibly scandalous story, but it's once again Jesus showing us as he redeems this woman's story that he loves to widen his circle and include even those we would consider to be least likely to be a part of his kingdom. Um, there's another story in Luke chapter 8 where uh, Jesus is with his disciples and all of a sudden uh, this synagogue leader named Jairus comes to Jesus and says, hey, my daughter is dying. Um, would you please come and heal her? And the synagogue leader, by the way, he's a public official. He's very popular. He's very well known. And so Jesus says, okay, I will go with you. But on the way, there's a crowd around him and this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, a woman who, by the way, by law, should not be in a crowd. And she certainly shouldn't be touching a Jewish man, actually ends up touching Jesus. Immediately, it says she is healed. Jesus stops and he looks and he says, hey, who touched me? And nobody wants to own up to it, but eventually this lady, in fear, it says, came and fell at Jesus' feet, probably wondering, like, okay, he's a Jewish man. What's he going to do to me? But she looked and she said, it was me. I, I did it. And Jesus didn't look at this woman and say, ooh, that's disgusting, or that's gross. But rather, he says to her again, hey, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, eventually, Jesus would go on and he would heal Jairus' daughter. But what's amazing is he heals the popular, powerful man's daughter in private. But he heals the outcast in public. Why? Because once again, Jesus is showing that his kingdom is reserved for the last, the least, and the lost of society. In Luke chapter 15, we see that it said Jesus ate meals with sinners and tax collectors. If you know anything about tax collectors, you know that they were absolutely despised by the Jews because the tax collectors were the ones who worked for the Romans who were oppressing the Jews just so they could make more money for themselves. They were considered to be traitors. They were hated by the Jews. And yet Jesus, who was very Jewish, said, would go into their homes and eat meals around their tables. Why? Because, listen, here's what Jesus is saying. There is nobody beyond my reach. Nobody. What Jesus is trying to get across is that the gospel is for all people in all places, no matter who you are or what you have done. And again, because the early church knew that their job was now to continue the work that Jesus started, we see the same thing in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we looked at it. We see the Pentecost where the Spirit falls and all these different people from all these different tribes. Peter in his sermon begins to quote the prophet Joe who says, There is now neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male or female, which is kind of a confusing verse, but it's his way of saying the Holy Spirit can be poured out on anybody. In verse 38, he says, This promise of the Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far off. In Acts chapter 2, we see that all believers, despite coming from different places, that so they had all things in common. In Acts 3, we see a lame beggar who many thought were cursed by God, who could not enter into the temple. We see that he enters into the family of God. In Acts chapter 8, we see the Samaritans, who are considered to be the half-breeds, receive the gospel. We see an Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized. In Acts chapter 9, we see Saul, who is a terrorist, 
right, eventually become a missionary. This man who's radically opposed to Jesus, who tried to kill the church, is now drawn into the church. In Acts 13, we see the gospel spread to the Gentiles, those who were considered to be the furthest from God. In Acts 16, we see three different conversions. We see someone who was upper class, middle class, and lower class. An Asian, a Greek, and a Roman, all brought into the kingdom of God. In Acts 17, we looked at the, con- uh, the conversion of the Athenians, who were an intellectual community. And in Acts 19, as we looked, the gospel went to businessmen and eventually to an empire, to an entire group of people who were so wicked that they would throw their babies outside the city if they didn't feel like the babies had a beautiful enough physical appearance. And yet, Paul would go to these people and say, even you can be included in the kingdom of God. There's so many more examples I could share, but the point I'm just trying to make this morning is for Jesus and his early followers, they dismantled this us versus them mentality. This idea of the worthy and the unworthy, the deserving and the undeserving was turned upside down. And these were a people, this was a church that gave their entire lives to taking the gospel to all people in all places. And therefore, what you need to understand today is if you're going to step into the life that God created you to experience, if we're going to take the book of Acts seriously and apply this to our life, the same must be true of us. We must be a people who are committed to radical inclusion. And one of my favorite um, movies growing up was the movie Jurassic Park. And one of my favorite scenes from Jurassic Park is whenever John, the guy who owns the park, is trying to impress all of these like brilliant scientists. And so he brings them into his laboratory where they breed dinosaurs. And he says to them, we actually have no problem with control here because we've, we've only made female dinosaurs and therefore, right, like they can't breed. So we have complete control of the population. And, and I love it because Jeff Goldblum, uh, who plays the great character Ian Malcolm, is totally unimpressed. And he says the following. He says, John, the kind of control you are attempting simply isn't possible. Life will not be contained. Life breaks through. It expands to new territories and it crashes through barriers painfully maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. And one of the scientists is very incredulous, and he looks, and he's like, are you trying to say that a, a, that a group compiled completely of female dinosaurs is somehow able to breed? To which uh, Jeff Goldblum says, in the way that only he can say it, I am simply saying that life um, finds a way. Now, here's the deal. If you want to know the whole message of the book of Acts, just fit the word gospel in there. The gospel cannot be contained. The gospel breaks through. It expands to new territories. It crashes through barriers. You can kill, as we see in the story through Acts, you can kill its preachers. You can throw Christians in prison. You can throw up all kinds of barriers, but it doesn't matter. The gospel always finds a way to move forward. It breaks through every barrier. And that's why, by the way, Christianity is different from every other religion. Every religion on the face of the earth has 80 to 90% of its inheritance all on one of two continents. Christianity literally is spread all over the world. Did you ever realize that? Like 20% are in Asia, 20% are in Africa, 20% are in Europe. I mean, Christianity literally is the only religion that has broken through every single barrier. Why? Because it cannot be stopped. Therefore, I would challenge you as we come to the end of this series to make a list of people who do not know Jesus. And if you don't have a list of people who do not know Jesus, take the blinders off. Go hang out with people who do not know Jesus. But make a list of people who are far from God. And what I want you to realize is no matter how far they may seem, no matter what barriers you think would keep them from believing the truth, I want to challenge you to pursue them with the conviction that nobody is beyond the radical, extravagant grace of Jesus. 
So the way of Jesus is all in. And what we mean by that is no matter who you are, where you come from, or what you have done or have not done, or what walls you've built up, you can enter into the kingdom of God. Secondly, what we see is that the way of Jesus is not just all in, but it's all in. What we mean by that is the way of Jesus is not just committed to radical inclusion, but also radical surrender. Put another way, not only does the early church not hold anyone back from entering into community, but once they enter into community, the people in that church hold nothing back. Um, If you have ESPN or ESPN2, it seems like every other day there is a high-stakes poker game on or the World Series of Poker. I'm personally uh, not a big fan of poker. don't even know how to play poker. But if you're ever just looking to kill a good 15 minutes in your life, it's a great character study because the characters around that table really are impressive. Um, There's something else. And I, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, there was a $17 million pot in the middle of the table. $17 million. And most of the players had all uh, folded. They were out, but there was two guys and it was kind of, it all came all down to them, and they're looking at each other, and they're probably only like three feet apart, but they're looking at each other up and down. And there's no shot clock in poker, and so you can look at someone for like 20, 30 minutes. Like, there's nobody's rushing you. And I don't know what you're looking for. I guess like you're looking for a tail, right? Like maybe that bead of sweat on your brow, or like to see if your pulse is going up, or your eyes twitching. And these guys are looking at each other, and finally one guy makes a decision. And in a very cool, very calm, very confident way, he says... I'm all in. And then he pushes all of his chips to the middle of the pile. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that feeling of all in is the same feeling you get when you seriously read through the book of Acts. These were a people who were committed to Jesus Christ. They were a people who were laying it all on the line for the cause of Christ. And there are so many examples that we could look at, but I just want to look at one in Acts chapter 4. It's one of my favorite stories, but in Acts 4 verse 13, um, you can look if you want, or we'll put it on the screen for you. But this was after Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel. They were warned to stop talking about Jesus. However, Peter and John kept talking about Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 4 verse 13, it says this, It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John. And by the way, let me just say this real quick, side note. Courage is always the tipping point into action. Does that make sense? You can say all day long, you want to be generous, but it takes courage to really be generous. You can say all day long, I want to have gospel conversations. Courage is the tipping point that will lead you to having those conversations. Courage is always the tipping point into action. So when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, they looked at these guys, and they said, these are just regular dudes. But these are just normal guys. They're not educated. They, they don't have a great resume. They're not very smart. But here's what's clear to us. And ask yourself, is this clear to others when they look into your life? It was clear to them that these men had been with Jesus. And why do they say that? Because of their courage. Because even in the midst of great opposition, they were all in. And this wasn't just true of Peter and John. It was true of the church as well. If you keep reading in this story, it says after Peter and John were released in verse 29. Again, we can put it on the screen for you. It says this, that the church lifted their voices and they prayed, God, please do whatever you can to keep us safe and comfortable. Is that what they prayed? No, verse 29, Lord, now consider their threats and enable your servants to continue to speak the word with boldness and stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued, look at this, to speak the word of God boldly. Guys, this is what the church should look like. It is a group of ordinary people who are by the Spirit filled with an extraordinary power that propels them forward with an unquenchable passion to make Jesus known. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, man, how much different is this in the way the church looks in America? And I'm not trying to throw stones at us today. Like this is just an insider critique. But a lot of times when you think about our philosophy of church, it's so much different than their philosophy. Our philosophy of church a lot of times can be summed up in that question that we've probably all asked others. They've asked us, and it's this question. Where do you go to church? Or what church do you attend? To which we typically respond by saying, oh, I go to Fellowship, or I go to, to Eastside, or I go to Seventh Muller, or Central, or I, I attend this place, or I go to that place. And listen, if that's language that you use, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody, we've all used it, but please understand today, the church is not an accessory. It's not something that you tend, but the church, according to the book of Acts, is the people of God, saved by the power of God, and dwelt with the presence of God for the purpose of God. And that purpose is to live lives as sent ones, as missionaries, as witnesses, as those who go out to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in America, it's so much different than this. I was thinking this past week, I was reading about um, a man by the name of Velfredo Pareto. Is that not a phenomenal name? For those of you maybe looking for baby names, there's one right there. Valredo Pareto, an Italian economist who in the late 1800s was studying uh, economic principles. And he came up with what was called the 80-20 rule. Anybody heard of the 80-20 rule? Anybody? A few of you. It later became known as the Pareto principle in honor of him. But here's the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule says this. That roughly, when it comes to events, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. He goes on to say this, in a corporation or organization, typically, 20% of people on the staff or in the organization are responsible for 80% of the outcome of the organization. He says the same thing is true in sales. 20% of customers will make up 80% of the orders. And then he would go on in his theory and say the 80-20 rule really works through all of life. And say, now why in the world are you sharing that with me? Because sadly, I believe that in many ways the 80-20 rule has seeped into the church of Jesus Christ. And as a result, what this means is, is this beautiful, vibrant, joy-filled, exhilarating ride that is called the church now looks more like the Pareto principle just with a cross thrown over the top of it. And what's so tragic about this is because when you think about the cross, which is like our symbol, it is a symbol and is a reminder that our entire faith is built on a Savior who came to this earth and, and he left nothing on the sidelines. He gave every ounce of everything he had to accomplish the one thing we could never accomplish for ourselves, which is to purchase our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. And what you have to understand today is, please hear me, guys, this is straight from the scriptures. Because Jesus went all in for you, the only appropriate response now is for you to go all in for him. Today, Jesus looks at you, and though I know this is a crowd, he sees you, and he asks you today, do you believe that I'm the Son of God? Do you really believe that I'm the one who came to forgive your sins? Do you believe that I canceled your debt? Do you believe that I rose from the dead? Do you believe that I conquered sin, death, and hell? 
Do you believe that I came to redeem you and to restore you and to give you a hope that is beyond anything that even the grave could rob from you? If so, then look, he says very clearly that it's time for you to pick up your cross and to follow me. To go from being lukewarm, to go from having one foot in and one foot out, to surrender your entire life to him, your past, present, and future. For some of you in the room today, uh, you've made that decision. And it is very clear to us, and it's very clear to those around you, that you have made a decision to go all in on Christ. But for others, if you can be honest, you are sitting on the sidelines, which is why you are bored out of your minds. For some of you, um, you were trying to turn Christianity into a spectator sport, which is boring, right? Um, you were going all in on something, whether it be your career or making a lot of money or getting a lot of likes. You're going all in on something, but listen, please hear me as a pastoral warning. You are going all in on the wrong pot. And in the process, you are getting swept up into something that kind of resembles Christianity, only to find out in the end that it's not it at all. And my encouragement to you today and my hope is that, and I know this is kind of cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway because my wife told me I could say it. I'm going to encourage you today to trade the Pareto principle for the Numa principle. And if you're like, what in the world is Numa? And you're looking it up on Wikipedia, don't look it up. I just made it up, okay? Numa is the Greek word for Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's also the Greek word for wind and breath. So it's a word that represents movement and action. And you see, what's different between the Pareto principle and the Numa principle is the Pareto principle says that 20% of the people should do 80% of the work. But the Numa principle says this, that 100% of the people who receive the Holy Spirit, 100% go all in. They lay it all on the line for Jesus. And if we could just get behind this as a church, I'm telling you, if we would be a people who would live counterculturally, that we would not settle for consumeristic Christianity, but we'd say, okay, all right, pastor or missional community leader, DNA leader, show me what's required of me. And then we said, okay, whatever that says, I'm doing it. I'm telling you, this church would become like a, a spiritual rocket. I mean, that's the, the best picture that comes to my mind. Where literally, we would be fueled by a power that is beyond comprehension, that would take us to places we have never gone, to experience things we have never experienced, to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to people who have never received it. And so the question today as we come to the end of Acts is this. What does it look like on a practical level to go all in, all in? And if you hang with me for just five to seven more minutes, I will tell you. What does it look like on a practical level, on the ground level, to be a community that is all in, all in? And if you're a member in our church, what I'm about to tell you should not be anything new. But here's what it means. You ready? On a practical level. It means to commit to four things. Together, to go, to grow, and to give. Together, to go, to grow, and to give. If you want to go all in on Jesus, you need to consistently gather with the body of Christ. You need to show up here on Sunday mornings. You need to get involved in a missional community and go to your meals. And listen, please hear me. And I say this with love in my heart, for your good and for God's glory. Not just when all the stars align perfectly. We make time for what we prioritize. I mean, we make time for what really matters to us. I would encourage you to, to show up here every time you get a chance and into your MC meals. That's what it means to go all in. Secondly, 
To be a community that's all in, all in means to go. It means to be committed to what we call a reactive and a proactive mission. What that means is when we say reactive mission, that means that you view yourself as a missionary 24-7. We were just talking about this a while ago, me and Derek, before the service, the early church. I mean, people were being added every single day because whenever they woke up, they literally saw themselves as a missionary. It's like, who can I share the gospel with today? We need to see ourselves as missionary in the marketplace, at the store, in our, in our schools, and in our neighborhoods, and look for opportunities as the Spirit prompts to share the gospel. But then, because Jesus didn't just send people out by themselves, but in groups, we want to be involved not just in a reactive mission, but a proactive mission. That's why we have missional communities that have a specific mission focus. Thirdly, to be all in, all in means that we're committed to our growth. It means that we're committed to confess hidden sin in our life. And not just like 99% confession, but a full, clean confession. It means that we read the scriptures, that we pray, that we do the hard work of the spiritual disciplines, that we plug into things like a DNA, and we seek truly to become the men and women that God made us to be. And then finally, to be a community that is all in, all in, all in means that we give. It means that you give of your time, of your talents, and your treasures. For some of you in here, you are so busy because you are trying to live like everybody else in the world and then shove Jesus into all the nooks and crannies of your life. That is bound to fail. What Jesus maybe is calling some of you to do today is to stop trying to add him on top of everything else, but to literally reorient your entire schedule and life around him so that you actually have space to live out the life he's called you to live. We need to give of our time. We need to give of our treasures. Everybody here has gifts. It's easy to see the band and they come up here and play. I couldn't do this stuff. God's given them gifts. That's why they serve. You might not be able to play a musical instrument, but God has certainly given you certain talents that you can use to build up this body so that we can more effectively reach more people. And then finally, God calls us to give of our treasures. And by the way, the thing people get most angry when I preach about is money, right? But if we did it, we'd preach about it once. If we did it as many times as Jesus did, we'd do it every four weeks. Because Jesus, 25% of the time he was talking to the Gospels, guess what it was about? Money. And you know why? Because that shows you what your God really is. Jesus wants us to give to his church, not because he needs the money, but because you need your heart transformed. And one of the ways that we transform, one of the biggest acts of worship is whenever we actually say, okay, I truly believe God has given me everything that I have. And rather than living beyond my means to impress people that aren't even going to matter in the end, I'm going to surrender this up to God and trust that he is in control of my life and he knows what's best. I'll tell you right now that as a church, I promise you, we can show you the report, we do not need more money. We are doing very well financially. This is not what I'm about to say, a call to somehow pull us out of debt. We don't even have any debt. But what I'm telling you right now is if you want to go all in, I do not see how anybody can do it reading the scriptures apart from saying, okay, Jesus, I'm not going to just give you my time, I'm not going to give you my talents, but also here's my treasures. Here's my wallet. Here's my money. You tell me what to do with it. I was talking to my um, daughter about this last week because we give our, our kids an allowance and we're kind of cheap. So like my daughter's seven, so we give her $7 a month. My son's six, so we give him $6 a month. Uh, Moses is only two and a half. He doesn't know what money is, so we don't give him anything. And so, um, and what we're trying to teach them to do is to tithe and to save and to give. And so last week was, uh, Megan, uh, it was Nora's Aunt Sandy's birthday. She had $20 in her little bank. And she said, I want to go buy Aunt Sandy a gift with all of this. And I said, well, baby, you remember, you need to set aside 10% of this for God. You need to save a little bit. And then you can do whatever you want with the rest. And she goes, oh, like that. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute. 
I was like, I, put, I held up the $20, and it was mainly ones. I said, you didn't earn this. Like, God gave this to you. And she said, no, God gave it to you. Then, or you, then you gave it to me. And I was like, well, the point is, yeah, like, God gave it to you through me. And I was like, and, and the only reason I was able to do it is because I work. The only reason I can work is because God gives me the ability to work. So it's all God's. And I said, now, here's what's amazing, Nora. I said, think about this. God gave you all of this. He told you all he wants is this. And I put $2 down, and you get to keep all that. And she goes, oh, cool. And I was like, it is cool. And I thought, man, God help us as adults who look and say, are you kidding me? $2 and I only keep 18 even though you gave it all to me. Man, the reality is, guys, we need to be a people who trust God with everything we have. Everything we have. And it is only then that I'm telling you, God will go from just being this rumor to being reality. And you'll experience him in the fullness that you've never experienced him before. I just want to say this as we end this morning. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I'm not really talking to you right now. Um, if you are here and you are a Christian, but you're struggling, and you're like, I'm just trying to figure out if I should be a part of a church, shouldn't, not really talking to you right now. It'd be great if you go all in. I mean, I invite you to go all in. But as Adam said earlier, this really is a place where we will meet you wherever you are. And you can grow at God's timing, not our timing. It's a place where you can belong before you believe, okay? And so there's space here to work through all this. And do I really want to believe this? But here's what I want to say. If you've been here a year and you're still sitting on the sidelines, still one foot in, one foot out, still kind of just picking and choosing what verses that you want to obey, and I want to call you to more today with all the love that's in my heart. Acts is left unfinished for a reason. The point is, it is now our time. The story is continuing today, and you have the option right now. There's one of two options, and here it is. You ready? And then we'll be done. You can either choose to play the leading role in your small, finite story, or you can play a supporting role in God's grand, eternal, never-stopping story. That's your option. You can choose to go all in on a life that is truly life, or you can, in the words of C.S. Lewis, settle for mud pies when a vacation at sea awaits you. With all that being said, as we come and we close this morning, the question is, what will be the overarching narrative of your life? When it's all said and done, and it comes time to draw on your last breath on earth, as you think about how you are spending your time and your money and all of your energy, what will be the story that my life will tell? What will be the story that my life tells? And if this message overwhelms you, which I'm sure it is to some of us, um, let me just say this, and we've said it before, you cannot boil the whole ocean, but you can do the next right thing. Through the power of the Spirit, you can do the next right thing. I don't know what that is. You don't know what that is. But the Spirit will show you what it is. And so I want to encourage you as you think about this whole study that we've been through, just take at least one thing that you're going to tip into action that you've learned through the book of Acts. One thing through courage that you will tip into action. Some of you, maybe you have not gone all in when it comes to your sexuality. You're looking at pornography. Uh, you're flirting with that person at work. Um, 
you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or sexting or whatever it may be. Some of you, you've not gone all in when it comes to community. You're living in isolation, kind of standing in the shadows. Or some of you, have not gone all in when it comes to sharing your faith. Some of you, have not gone all in when it comes to your finances. I hope to you today is that you will go all in and listen, that you will know that when you do, please hear me, it will be a sacrifice. It will even at times feel like a death, but on the other side of that death is a resurrection. You will have to say no to good things. Please hear me. If you decide to go all in on Jesus, you will have to say no to some good things. But in doing so, you will say yes to the ultimate thing, which is Jesus Christ, who is the true treasure chest of joy, who is the ultimate jackpot, so to speak, who is worth going all in for. With that being said, I want to invite you to stand this morning as the band comes forward. And we're going to partake of communion. If you are here and you are a Christian, um, you're welcome to this table. We have two stations in the front. We have two stations in the back. It's a gluten-free option for you in the back. Um, and we invite you to come. And here's why communion matters so much is because it is really easy for a message like this to motivate you to go out and do something with all the wrong motives. So guilt, guilt, is a, uh, guilt gets things done. Like, guilt will move your hands. Like, if you walk out of here and you just feel guilty for not going all in, all in, you're like, all right, I'm going to do it. And then, like, in three weeks, you're going to be burnt out or tired or, like, resenting me or whatever else because I preach this message. And so what we need to be motivated by today is not guilt but grace. And that is why we come and we have a tangible reminder that before Christ ever called us to go all in for him, he went all in for us. And that, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so again, if you're here and you've trusted in Christ, come, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. If you're here today and you have not fully surrendered your life to Jesus, I pray the day is the day of salvation. We'll have Adam in the front and myself as well. We'd love to pray with you and help you process that. I want to pray for us now and, and um, we'll continue in our worship. Father, I thank you so much for every person who is in this room. I thank you for the book of Acts. I thank you that Jesus, you are our example of laying it all on the line. And we have so many competing stories out in the world right now and narratives. And I pray that truly every person who is in this room right now and listening through podcasts, that they would be someone who goes all in. That they would see that, Jesus, truly you are worth everything. And that they would see that surrendering their life to you is the greatest way to experience the fulfillment and the freedom and the forgiveness that we are longing for. If there's anybody here today who has not done that, I pray it changes before they leave. And it's a cross that we pray and ask these things. Amen.